0: Hello, welcome back to the Current State of Music podcast. This is a podcast that talks to artists, producers, industry people, engineers, anyone in music basically, who has kind of is somewhere along their journey and is probably further ahead than most of us, I should say. So it's talking to them to try and gain some inspiration into what kind of events has happened during their journey uh, to find out where music is right now for them to find out if they've got any hopes for the future that sort of thing and um, if you're new to this podcast this is a slight it's not the same as the rest of them basically I've been trying to do this one for ages and it's a guy that I do the occasional bit of work for and that will become apparent in the interview and we've been trying to hook it up and I was going to go up and see him and do it there he's been struggling with an illness in the last year or so so that's made time pretty tight I've also not really been kind of able what with the school run and stuff to kind of find the time to get up there and see him Uh, so it's been a bit tricky and then obviously the lockdown happened and I just thought, come on, let's do it. And I spoke to him and he was like, yeah, yeah, let's just do it. And um, funnily enough, given that he is a man who owns a company who sells microphones and the rest of the series, every single interview apart from with Mr. Thing where I forgot a cable, every interview has been done with this guy's microphones. Like they travel with me everywhere. Um, I use them in my studio they're basically like my go-to microphones, and they um, they are amazing. They've changed the game completely. And, um, sorry, excuse me if you heard some rumbling from my stomach there. And, uh, yeah, they've changed the game completely in the kind of microphone industry. And they're quite a thing to behold. And, unfortunately... Um, In the hurry just to get it done, to get this interview done, and in the bag, I just relied on Skype audio, which is pretty shit to be honest. But it's an interesting conversation with a man who has kind of been through some, definitely been through some ups and downs and has kind of come out of it innovating. And I think that's instead of kind of licking his wounds and hiding under a rock, he's actually come out swinging. With a piece of equipment that, or pieces of equipment that are literally changing the microphone market, and no one saw it coming, so that's really exciting. And um, yeah, I went to their, I got invited to their Christmas party a couple of years ago, and oh man, I just had such a good time. It was just such a family vibe, and I think that's the one of the best things about Aston Microphones is that it's not a standoffish company; it's a very warm, welcoming family affair and uh, it's very apparent and I certainly felt that when I went along and there was not really a lot of need for me to go along because I'm quite a small fry in the whole scheme of things I should imagine and that sort of didn't matter I'm part of the team I kind of contribute as much as I can and they took me up there they put me up for the night they fed me they filled me with drink and we had a lovely time so yeah I want to say thanks to James uh, Aston Mikes for coming on and doing this and unfortunately the Skype audio doesn't do his microphones justice but um, the reviews and everything else you hear about them do do it justice so if you are in the need of a microphone then uh, you could do a lot worse than check out Aston Mikes that is for sure uh, if yeah, if you are you new to this podcast as well, normally as well, uh, I have a bed of music that's either from that artist or producer or somehow related to. But in the kind of, I know James is pretty busy and in the hurry to kind of just get this done and out there. Uh, we've kind of not done a bed on this one, so it's just the it's pretty much the raw audio couple of tiny edits but this was pretty much how the conversation went down and uh yeah i want to say thanks to james for for doing that and i'll be back at the end to uh do all that housekeeping stuff that podcast people do so i'll see you then and uh, in the meantime please enjoy an hour in the company of james young from aston mikes Although you're the first one I've done over Skype, and it seems like the man who makes microphones to be doing it over Skype <laughs> seems to be. I oh, know, right. <laughs> <So> <laughs> no, the no, irony's no, not no, lost. There we go. But anyway, so yeah, um, shall we start?
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: Hopefully we'll have it done in like 45 minutes, If depends how much you talk, I suppose. Cool. Um, all right, so can you introduce yourself, please?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm James Young, CEO of Aston
0: Microphones. Okay, and as CEO, in a nutshell, what does your job involve?
1: <laughs> Getting away with lots of stuff, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Telling other people to it's do stuff.
1: you're running the show, but actually it's my team. My team uh, really, my team run the show these days, which is great. So my, my actual job is apart from kind of being a, a figurehead for the company and going and meeting and greeting people at trade shows and stuff what I, what I do behind the scenes is product development and run the marketing side right. of the company
0: yeah um well I would I will come we'll come back to the um, Aston family thing a bit later on because I want to talk about that because I think it's quite a <clears throat> it's quite a thing you've got going on there but let's um let's go back to the beginning where What's your sort of earliest memories of music having an effect on you? Oh, wow.
1: Um, I remember exactly, actually. I was um, sat with my uncle, my Uncle Ronnie, uh, when I was about six years, five, six years old, maybe, yeah, probably about five years old, actually, um, with a pair of those big old white kind of Bakelite headphones on, yeah. and he played me Morning Is Broken by Cat Stevens. Right. And I was absolutely captivated, and, uh, and actually I then... I then kind of grew up and cut, cut my teeth on Cat Stevens, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, those were all my favourite artists when I was growing up, you know. Yeah.
0: Where where, where, where did you grow up?
1: I was, uh, I had a bit of a, yeah, around Robin of a childhood, really. I was in Wales for the first five years. I was born in Wales. Right. My parents are English. Um, and uh, then I moved to the Isle of Man, so, you know, got more and more right. remote as things yeah, went on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I moved around a lot while I was in Wales as well. I think we were in about six or seven different houses, and then uh, and then my mum moved to Hatfield, and I've been in Hertfordshire ever since, apart from going to university and travelling around, you know, yeah. different living different places because of that. But yeah.
0: And uh, what was it like at school? Were you did you have like friends who sort of followed your music, or like were sort of into the same no. music as you, and or you, because this is a funny Definitely. thing, a lot of the people I talked talk. Well, a lot of the people I talk to, they've kind of been slightly on out on their own in their tastes and yeah. things, and it always it seems to be a recurring theme. Why do I you think that was?
1: School as well, and I mean, especially you know, secondary school. When um, I, I started playing the guitar when I was seven years old, I was lucky enough to have a teacher who who um, was just a class teacher who asked everybody in class one day if they fancied doing some lunchtime guitar lessons. You know, yeah. very informal thing, and I said yes. Um, because I didn't really like being at the playground anyway, <laughs> so so um, I still got the little book that that um, he used for the lessons. Now a tune gonna... A day,
0: huh? a tuna
1: day, oh, something like that. Yeah, it's got like a little Mardi Gras picture on the front cover and whatnot. <laughs> so... <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I remember the first song I ever played was "Come Back, Liza." You know, some kind of like reggae-ish kind of yeah. tune. You know, yeah, <laughs> which doesn't sound very good on a little. Three quarter size nylon guitar, but there we go. <laughs> I loved it, <laughs> and um, but no, secondary school, um, I was I was into
0: like I said, Cat Stevens and James Taylor. Everybody thought I was a complete weirdo, so yeah, you know, musical taste definitely didn't mix. And uh, so, you had a bit of guitar education. Did what did did you have any like sort of musical like music lessons and things? Did they mean anything to you?
1: No, um, I hated music lessons at school. My parents weren't musical, nobody in my family played an instrument, but I, for some reason, I um, absolutely fell in love with playing the guitar. Um, I think possibly because I discovered early on that, you know, I liked being in the limelight, you know, playing on stage and stuff, you know, I like that bit of it. (laughs) (laughs) So it got a bit of attention. Maybe that's what it was. But but mainly, what I got out of it was just, you know, I mean, I started writing very early on as well. So I used to spend hours and hours and hours in the bedroom, just just not really, pra- I wouldn't call it practising, just playing the same chords over and over again, because right. I enjoyed it, It was yeah. meditative, I now understand. And um, I didn't have any formal guitar lessons apart from the first few that I had at school with that teacher until I was about 10. And I had, a, I had about a year's worth of lessons from, from this guy, John Bagley, who was a complete nutcase, and got me into all the really quirky stuff. He was an absolute butter. It was brilliant, because when I went around his house, it was just like, it was like Steptoe and Sonny. He had like 300 guitars (laughs) on the walls, and, you know, dusty piles of books and stuff. It was brilliant. Um, He got me into the stuff that wasn't mainstream at all, really, and he was the one that introduced me to Johnny Mitchell. And, um, yeah, and then that that was it, really. I just played on my own, uh, writing recording using little cassette players and then four tracks and whatever. And the first time I actually got into a band was when I was at university, when I was about 19.
0: Right. What did you do at university? Or what did you you go to study, I should say?
1: (laughs) Nothing to do with music, again. (laughs) I
0: studied zoology. Right. Um, Yeah. And, uh, actually, it was really interesting because I majored in
1: things like parasitology and epidemiology and disease control. So all this <laughs> stuff. that's going My with CV nineteen. I'm kind of like <laughs> telling my mates, and two weeks later, go told you so. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and then I, I, in my
2: final year, I majored in gerontology, um, which is the study of the physiological aging in humans. Right.
1: And uh, is that a cheerful <laughs> subject. As you did. <laughs> And uh, I, I did a, a master's at um, King's College in London, and then realised I really didn't want to spend the rest of my life pipetting little old ladies' urine into test tubes <laughs> in the basement of a hospital somewhere. So that was it. <laughs> I went and got a job.
0: <laughs> but was was music as was like music ever an idea to kind of um, make something out, so make something more out of than just a hobby?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean all the way through my teenage years and young adult years I I was convinced that I ought to be a pop star. Um and I did a lot of I you know, I wrote some good music and did a lot of did a lot of gigs and stuff, but I didn't for some reason didn't have the the drive to go out and go and make that, you know, my thing. Yeah. I think actually because Fun, funnily enough, considering what I said, um, you know, a couple of minutes ago, I was actually quite terrified of the idea of intrusion into my life like that. Right. Of, you know, being in the public eye. Yeah, yeah. Um so I just did so I just, you know, did my thing and got involved in music from another angle, basically.
2: So, you know, when I was I went through quite a messy divorce when I was twenty three years old, I was really young, I had two 23? kids. Twenty three, wow. Yeah. <laughs> And to cut a long story short, I lost custody of my kids
1: unexpectedly because yeah. I actually had custody of them at that time. Yeah. And uh, just, just came off the the wrong end of a, um, uh, a, a fairly old school judge that just said, as far as he's concerned, children should always be with their mother. Bang, that was it. Wow. Not even a case. So so I ended up basically walking out of the courtroom, having just lost my kids, and getting on a train and going up to London. Um, and, yeah, so, so I, I, <sighs> I ended up um, wandering into... The shop where I bought all my music gear. Yeah. My mics and uh, mixing desks and things like that.
0: I used Um, to be a customer at Turnkey as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was the place to get all your gear back in the day, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, uh, and I remember walking in there and asking for a job, and Rupert Pfaff, who, who became, you know, since became a friend, um, that he, he, I went and had an interview with him. And I had I was all starry-eyed about that actually. I so, thought, oh great, you know, this is quite a, this is actually
0: quite a cool thing that I'm getting to do this. And yeah. I was
1: gonna learn all about this gear, because I've never been very
0: technically minded actually weird, right? And uh, <laughs> I turned up the next day for my first day at work
1: and I walked in and he went, There's the coffee machine. You don't sew, you don't eat. <laughs> <laughs> weren't allowed to take gear home to play with it and it was literally there was no basic salary it was all commission so it really was you don't certainly don't eat wow (laughs) yeah so from (laughs) zoology to music stores that's how that's how it happened
0: (laughs) but what was their sort of environment like then what what was like what was the sort of bits of kit that were sort of the most popular like what was doing it
1: oh my god i am gonna have to throw my mind back now um I've got, I've got such a fuzzy memory these days about product names and stuff, but it was um, it was before I went to go kind of work for SoundCloud. So like, you know what? I can't actually remember. It was the, the samplers, but I can't remember which one it was. The Emu. Right. It, it was the Emu samplers, yeah. That were big. And um, I remember that the Waldorf microwave had just come out. I think or the Waldorf wave. You know, that right. was like a 15,000-pound keyboard. It was <laughs> in an in a sanctuary somewhere yeah, in the store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to be honest with you, it was mainly... You know, I remember the mics I was selling because I bought one from there myself, so I picked it up. It was the Audio Technica 4033. Right. And it was mainly things like, you know, just little keyboard controllers, you know, Yeah. Um, 86-note keyboard controllers and stuff like that, and, you know, Fatar keyboards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff, just, uh, and mic cables, and it was all the accessory stuff oh, that cool. actually made the money, you know? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. people would sort of come in to buy a sampler or a keyboard, and then you'd have to kind of sell them mic stands and mics and everything to go with it. Yeah.
0: And How long did you stay working there for, or what was the journey there? Not then? very long. About six months. Six months. I mean, it was okay. I did well, but um, I spent
1: half my salary commuting up to London and back every day. Yeah, of course. You know, so uh, and then I got a, a job at Sound Technology, who were, who are and are still a big distributor in the UK. At that time, they were doing um, Emagic Logic. Yeah, yeah. When it was Emagic Logic, yeah. and they were doing Ensonic and Alesis um, oh. and stuff like that so I was on tech support and QC which is an absolute joke <laughs> I, I can't even set my own studio up let like, <laughs> alone like somebody else's most of the tech support was basically we got told this when the customer rang up it was like have you read the manual uh, no right okay turn to page 86 and you'd read the yeah, manual yeah. out to embarrass them into not calling back again <laughs>
0: but did that job come about through having worked at turnkey like was that
1: sort of um if i hadn't have had the job in turnkey i probably wouldn't have got it but my 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 current business partner and and one of my oldest friends who i actually was at the same university at phil smith he got a job there and then uh, and and then basically he was enjoying it so much and i was like oh man you're working for this distributor i'd you know see if you can get me in there so he got me an interview right um yeah it's all and, and we still work together now <clears throat> Weird. We went our separate ways and then came back together
0: again. Okay, and then so were you still kind of making your own music at this point? Still, yes. play or That was still my
1: absolute focus at that point. And then after about a year at Sound Technology, I got headhunted by a guy called Tom Dubé. Um, it's this really colourful, larger-than-life character, headhunting right. guy, and he he got me an interview um, at a company which is now long gone called Sterling Audio. Right, doing. Uh, yeah, the, the interview was basically to go and run their distribution, the bit of distribution that they had. Yeah. Um, and their main uh, product was Lexicon. They had Apex, Lexicon, Sank, and a few bits and pieces, Megami. Right. Um, and of course, this is this is me at about uh, by this stage at about 24 and a half, going on 25 years old, with <laughs> yeah. really no experience at all. I've had you know, six <laughs> months in retail, a year doing text support out of a textbook <laughs> and QC and stuff. And I managed somehow to talk my way into running their distribution for them and then within a very short period of time, realizing that the way they were doing it wasn't gonna work and convincing them they needed to set up a, a, a
2: separate distribution company because it was an old school dealer distributor. Right. And of course when, when you're a retailer,
1: trying to sell to other retailers as a distributor yeah, doesn't yeah. go it doesn't go very well. No. You know? of course. So yeah, that's how I that's how I learned the ropes for distribution, I taught myself basically. <laughs> in the framework of a of a, of a company that I, that allowed me to set up a, a distribution arm um, within it, so it was uh, it was a bit bolshy, I
0: guess. So tell tell me a little bit about this guy because I reckon that's probably sometimes these sort of big characters come into your life, don't they, and sort of change things for you.
1: Don Dubay, you're talking
0: yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did what did him. he see in you, or what did you see in him that you thought there? Like, this I is... don't know how he got hold of my 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 name or anything about me. I think he
1: was. I think he's one of these characters that just used to phone around and try and network, you know, and, and find people that might be interesting for other people. And he yeah. he just he, he didn't really know me. He had a he chat, had a chat with me on the phone for about fifteen minutes. Decided that he thought he could place me somewhere,
2: right.
1: and and then found a place to put me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so it was all a bit crazy, actually. Um, yeah and I've never I've never come across anybody like that since
0: in my career right. or anybody trying to pick me up and place me somewhere or do that you know by putting people into my own companies either so it was a, yeah. it was a bit of a weird one off situation really Yeah 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 <laughs> Okay so you set up this distribution thing then where yeah. did that where did that go
1: It went really well uh, pure distribution it was called and and their, their distribution turnover went from about 250,000 pounds to over a million in the space of the first year So yeah. it was the, the little bit of the business that I was responsible for
2: was was about 50% of the turnover of the whole company
1: right. um, and uh, and After a couple of years of doing this and enjoying it and I loved driving around the country and seeing new places and you know, I, I just loved the whole thing, but it was very intense um and i won't bore you with all the details but we got product brands in there brought waves into the company Apogee into the company that kind of stuff and um i started after about four years it was saying hey you know i'd actually like to be part of the ownership of this i feel like i'm building something for you but i don't want to just Employed yeah. doing this for you and not being part of it. Yeah. And I kept being told things like, oh, you don't want the responsibility of being a director. It's too, <laughs> you know, are oh, you too young for that stuff? You don't want all that responsibility. Just enjoy what you're doing, you know, make your money, blah, 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 blah.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, there was a lot of, <laughs> there was an awful lot of cloak and dagger, um, which would probably be rude to reveal even now oh, <laughs> between different companies that did try to headhunt me right. and back and sniping backwards and forwards between people that own companies and. People trying to do dirty deals and stuff. It was awful, actually. <laughs> it was really awful at that, that time. Um, but it, eventually, it got to the point where I, I said, you know what? Um, either I become a director in this, I even offered to sell my house and put some of the money into it, which I'm right. glad I didn't because it went bust about two years later. Um, that, um, that, that I was going to have to leave and I didn't get what I wanted. So I left and uh, after I'd left, I, I picked up Waves, which was the last product line that I brought into that company, yeah. and that's what Phil and I. Phil happened to be the guy I talked about earlier, who's he's my business partner now as well.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, he was at a loose end because he'd just lost a, a job in the banking industry. Right, I think it was the I, the Ionian Bank of Greece he was working for. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a banker <laughs> and a um, zoologist. And I phoned him up, and he was, he, you know, he, he hadn't got anything going on, and we had this product line, Waves which again, the biggest year they'd ever had in the UK at that point was, some, I, I remember it being like $98,000 worth of sales.
2: Right. So there was the two of us thinking, so we could possibly
1: generate $30,000 worth of, of profit out of this line yeah. between two of us and our two families. <laughs> How's that going <laughs> to work? We just went, let's, let's fuck it, let's do it and see what happens. Yeah. Our first year, we did just under $400,000 worth of business. Wow. And um, <laughs> and so, and, you know, and... Yeah, so we, we made enough money to get by and then kept doing
0: the same thing. So, what form does that take? Because I guess, if I'm being a bit ignorant here, then please excuse me, but because they're plug-in, mostly plug-in, or they just only yeah. do plug-ins. Are they what, sorry? They only they only do plug-ins.
1: They only do plug-ins. There was well, <laughs> they did a, they did some hardware, but it was never a big bit of the business. Right. Yeah. At that time, especially, they did the Ultra Maximizer, the L3, all that kind of stuff as a a piece of hardware. Um, And they had some forays into ADDA cards, you know, um, recording systems, but really exclusively a software plugin company. And then we picked up other brands. I mean, I did the first mic brand I distributed was Blue in the UK. Right. And we have Prime Acoustic that yeah. we did. We did various different bits and pieces. We picked up Apogee after about two years yeah. of, the, of doing the company, and kept that all the way through to when that company went into administration about four years ago. Um,
0: was but it was, that Apogee um, went into administration, or the... oh,
1: no, no, my, my my old company had to go into administration. Right, That's another part of the story. Okay. It's not been an easy ride getting to where we are now. I tell you, it's no, been pretty,
0: uh, well, things pretty wild. I mean, the first. Uh, easily, the first two
2: years of having um, my own distribution company, which was called Sonic Distribution, yeah.
1: almost every night I was awake half the night, sweating, and woke up, you know, with like saturated bed sheets because I was just absolutely wetting myself. That I think I was going to lose my house or the business was going to yeah. go under, and it was it was a terrifying experience, actually horrible, horrible, horrible pressure the whole time hand to mouth the whole time
0: yeah well, what, um, what gets you through that or what what um yeah how do you sort of balance that with what you're doing like what makes it worthwhile
1: um well a lot of the people around me told me that they didn't understand why i thought it was worthwhile you know especially my parents were just like, i don't know how you can put yourself through this yeah but i think it's an experience that a lot of people that have small medium businesses yeah. go through yeah yeah um so part of it was just that I always believed that we were going to build something. Yeah. I just, you know, even when we were in the worst situations and our backs against the wall, which they very often were, um, there were so many things that would go wrong. And even things like, you know, a change a, a, a change in the exchange rate when we were buying yeah. products, when we had to pay for it, because you'd, you'd get the product on tick and then you'd pay for it a month later.
2: Yeah.
1: And it could wipe out thousands of pounds that we couldn't afford to have wiped out. Yeah. And it would be... You know that would be our salaries gone for that month yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it was it was crazy stuff like that um, but I just always had this um, belief of this is where I'm gonna be and just drove through it basically and I think the biggest thing I learned about that actually was there's not a lot of point in being terrified about the stuff that hasn't yet happened right deal with it because yeah. the, 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 the fear the terror that goes around that, the sleepless nights and everything, they actually don't help you at all. All it does is make you less able to deal with what you need to deal with, and it's either going to go bust or it isn't going to go bust, so just crack on with it. Yeah. And one, I think probably one of the biggest failings that I had in, in business was taking so long to have a failing. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I understand I, I, remember, I remember having a counselling session, not about business, but I got 10 years ago, and my counsellor said to me, you know your problem, James, is you're, you're afraid of failing. I was like, what are you on about? I take massive risks. I do this stuff. I do mad stuff all the time. And she said, yeah, that's the problem. Because if you fail, you can just go, well, nobody could have done that. Yeah. And in trying not to fail, you put yourself through bloody hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, And sometimes achieve the impossible, seemingly impossible as well. Yeah. And there's been lots of instances of us, of us scraping the company through stuff that, or companies that we had in the past through stuff that we should never have got through yeah. and never learning what it was like to actually fail. And when we did eventually an inverted commas fail, it wasn't really a failure when I look back on it now, but we had to put um, our business into administration. Um, It was a relief. It was a massive relief because it was like, oh, all that's happened. Now we can do something else. And it wasn't scary at all. (laughs) You know, we didn't lose anything. We actually gained something from it. That's
0: how Aston started. Yeah. And, um, yeah, why do you think it's just uh, being scared of change? like you you know what you're doing this is your thing that you've been doing and that to kind of step away from that is scarier because of the change aspect rather than the actual doing it
1: I was um, I was scared of letting my family down I was scared of letting my partner down and my kids and maybe possibly I had visions of losing my house losing everything um, scared of how other people would view me in the industry if I had to if I lost my company you yeah. know yeah because I was only used to being seen as being successful. And, um, yeah, and, and and the weird thing is that all of that stuff just goes away when you actually do go through a company breakdown in administration. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it's um, a feeling that is common to most people. I mean, if you relate it to marriages, for example, I mean, there's an awful lot of people out there who broken marriages, and they go through the same thing yeah, you know yeah. the fear of losing everything the fear of how their friends are going to look at them that you know it's and it's it's silly because it holds you back yeah not to say that you should just dump out the stuff at the at drop <laughs> of a hat no, <laughs> but obviously. maybe it's not quite as bad as it looks yeah <laughs> you know you haven't been through it before
0: <clears throat> and so so sonic went i think i'm i think yeah i must have first got in touch with you in the last days of Sonic, because I remember you sold me some kit for quite cheap. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm actually looking at some of the things right now. So, every cloud. Just don't give serial numbers out. (laughs) (laughs) I won't put them on eBay, it's fine. Uh, Oh, dear. (laughs) And, uh... Well when Sonic went, were you were you already thinking of doing oh, yeah. something else? Had you had you had something on your mind for a while or did it take no, like no, a I mean, period of reflection to kind of think about it?
1: Yeah, no, there was no there was
0: no period of reflection. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't there was
1: another period of sheer terror actually. Um because it preceded us finally putting a company into administration for the first time. So, so basically, what happened was um, we at the same time, as, virtually at the same time as I started Sonic, which was back in 2002. Yeah. Um, I I had previously in my in my job working with Sterling, and setting that distribution, I come across a character called Suay Zu um, at the Nam trade show, and that must have been back in oh, year 2000, something like that. It was a couple of years before I started Sonic. When I started Sonic, and, and I bought some really cheap Chinese OEM microphones that had never really been seen in the UK at that point. That was before the days when there were a thousand OEM brands on the market. Yeah, yeah. And you couldn't buy a condenser microphone for less than five hundred quid. Yeah. And I brought these little sort of black U eighty seven copies into the country, and sold them through Sound Control, and they were retailing it something like 199 pounds and everybody was going crazy for them because it was a you know pretty decent quality condenser weight for 199 quid which yeah, yeah. nowadays is that's standard fare but then yeah. wasn't at all and uh, <laughs> just thinking back to how long ago that was more than 20 years ago blinding. Um, and so I got back involved with this guy Suey and said hey you know I've started my own company and I, even back then I remember knowing that I didn't want to do
2: distribution. That what I really wanted to do was manufacturing. Right.
1: Because as a distributor, you're in kind of the worst possible place. Yeah. You don't own the brand, so you can't actually really control what's going on with it. And you're not the retailer, so you can't choose which brands you want to sell. You're yeah. stuck in the middle, being the middleman. And, yeah, yeah. and basically, if you do too badly, you'll have the brand taken away. If you have, if you do too well, the manufacturer will go direct. The retailers, you know, can pick and choose which brands they want to sell. So it's bloody horrible. Business yeah. to be in, to be honest with you. Um, so I said to Sway, um, "Hey, you know, you, you do these OEM microphones. I would like to create my own mic brand. How about we do something together?" Right. And he, and he said to me, "Yeah, well, actually, I've already got a couple of designs that I've been selling directly and through some, you know, through some direct retailers in in America. And and actually, he'd he'd literally been door to door with a suitcase with some microphones in and sold less Car- than a hundred thousand dollars of mics in a year."
2: Right.
1: Um, and so we started SE Electronics together. That right. was the company that I built. Yeah. <laughs> and sp- spent 12 years building that from a little Chinese OEM brand into a household, well, not a household name, but in the, if you're a musician, a yeah, household yeah, yeah. name.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: um, and it was the last couple of years of being in business with him that we started to see the writing on the wall. We knew that something was going on. We didn't have complete control over it because we've been quite green at the point in time that we set it all up it was our first distribution company It was my first business yeah when we first started with him we just said we'll do this thing together it was all done on a handshake
2: yeah yeah
1: and it was all done you know 50 50 he was doing the manufacturing we were doing the sales marketing the setting up of the brand distribution and a lot of the product development as well
2: yeah
1: and um it, was, it wasn't until we'd been trading together for about four, four years and we were starting to talk about millions of dollars worth of business yeah. that we sort of went, maybe, maybe we should put some contractual framework around this. <laughs> yeah. uh, at which point we did. And... To make it simple to understand, it was basically a 50-50 relationship. So the idea, and it was a, a contract that we put together ourselves because we couldn't afford big lawyers. Yeah. We did it in his flat in Shanghai. Right. Signed it all off, and it was basically a 50-50 contract, which gave him a bit of a bung um, because because it's a patriarchal system in China, and he was older than us, and he managed to convince us that because he was going to retire earlier, yeah. that he wanted some some of the profits during the period of time that we were, you know, divvying up the shares.
2: Yeah.
1: Anyway. Things started to get weird about two years before the end of that contract when we were supposed to be taking over the company. And then eventually in 2014, we went over there for a regular business meeting, myself and Phil, and they'd hired a hotel room out, Um, I want to say they, that was Suwei and his daughter Ling, they'd hired a hotel room out. and. which they never did for meetings. We always went to the flat or to the, the factory and what was going on here. And we walked into this hotel room and Sui announced that he was giving up his position as CEO and that Ling was taking over the company. We we're like, uh, what? <laughs> you yeah. know, this is the company we're 50% over, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think we might have <laughs> talked about this? And she just went, yeah, um, thanks for getting us where we are today. We couldn't have done it without you. Um, but we're not going to work with you anymore. And they just tore the contracts up Shit. and walked out. And that was it, and um, and we kind of,
2: you know, we we got angry, we, we were we were shocked. We yeah. went
1: through all of the stages of grief, basically, you know, shock, yeah, yeah. anger, denial, blah 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 blah. <laughs> and we got back to the UK, and we started speaking to the lawyers, and they went, "Yeah, brilliant, where are the contracts?" And we sent them the contracts, and they said, um, "Where were these made?" And we said, "In a flat in Shanghai," and they just went, "Oh God, <laughs>
0: <laughs> man."
1: Uh, so basically, jurisdiction. Chinese jurisdiction, yeah. Shanghai actually, because it's by state, um, and not a chance in hell of getting anything out of it. Yeah. So so we walked away from 12 years of building SE Electronics up to a $6 million company,
2: yeah.
1: and, and literally in the space of a five-minute meeting, walked away with nothing, our houses on the line, everything. And that's what forced our distribution company into administration. And even so, we spent a year. Um, Fighting to keep that alive in the face of ridiculous odds because we lost eighty percent of our business. Yeah. And what finally pushed us over the edge was we lost Apogee, which was the distribution line, the biggest distribution line that we had that we weren't owners of. And at that point, it was like, okay, this is this is going to go under. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, so we had to we had to put the company into administration, and that was a very scary process. We, you know, we, we. we went through months of talking with these administrators. We knew nothing about this process. It was very scary. Yeah. And we actually ended up with a, a couple of really good guys um, who made, reassured us that we'd done all the right things, that we'd, yeah. that we'd administered the business properly up to the point that it wouldn't work and that we were doing the right things. We hadn't done anything illegal or improper or anything like that. We yeah. went through the whole thing, came out of it the other side with our houses pretty much still intact. Yeah. And it was um, it was during that time it was it was in response to us having to go through the process of slowly putting the company into administration because it took quite a while. Yeah, it does, um, not it? That we put Aston together, right? And so it was a it was a we knew microphones. We'd done microphones for twelve years. We knew yeah. a, not only how to do it, but also a lot of the things that we hadn't been able to do working right. with SE. Yeah. And so we had this foundation of well okay if we're going to do anything right now this is what we know how to do and we're getting the opportunity to do it in the uk and hey nobody's got a microphone company that's built in the uk let's do this let's be the people that do this so out of that great adversity came this huge opportunity and um we sat down i remember sitting around a little chipped melamine white table in our offices upstairs in january 2015 (laughs) and with a literally four of us with pads of paper and pens going, okay, what are we going to call the brand? What's it going to look like? How many products are we going to launch with? Yeah. What are they going to be? And by December of that year, we had the first two products done and the brand launched. Wow. So it was quick, quickest brand launch and product development ever, I think, from scratch.
0: <laughs> so did you already have like a fairly firm idea of the products that you thought would work and how they would work?
1: Well, we knew from um, our years... With SE, which were the best-selling products within that brand,
2: yeah,
1: and why, and we knew that we, so we knew we could carve out a a, a decent chunk of market um, with something that was, you know, a, a, a simple entry-level condenser microphone, and then uh, a, a one-up from that, which was a multi-pattern microphone, yeah. and we wanted to do a reflection filter product, and those
2: were the first three products that we actually did as well, yeah, um, but
1: in we had a we had a rather interesting brief She'll talk about as we were earlier setting impossible targets right, right Yeah, go on. because the brief was they've got to be better than what we did before because yeah. if they're not better than what we did before then it's going to be seen as derivative yeah um so it had to be, we didn't want to have anything that was OEM because if we did something that was Chinese OEM and for, for people that are listening that don't know what OEM is, it just means original X manufacturer. In other words, it's a product that's already developed, built and designed and all you do is change the color and stick a badge on it and call it your own, yeah, yeah. which is what most companies out there are doing with microphones, um, but we're not. And we, we didn't want to buy in product from China and badge it as whatever we decided to badge it as we wanted to do it our own thing. Yeah. Um, so it had to be better. It had to be built in the UK. Um, it had to hit the same kind of price points as the company that we've been, uh, as the SE stuff, and also Rode, who, who the big, you know, the market leader yeah, out yeah. there, Blue companies like that. <laughs> because we thought, well, if we if we build some microphones, being known as we were for doing SE, at least not if not by the public, by the industry, um, and their 500 quid to a thousand pounds each when we launched. then there's a real danger that people are just going to go oh that's just the guys from se building stuff that's more expensive because it's in the uk so yeah and we wanted it to look different we yeah. wanted it to be innovative um and we had to do all of that stuff while building it in the uk and keep it at the same prices as a chinese product <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that was the brief
0: <laughs> <clears throat> and uh yeah the speed in which you kind of um What's the right word? Completed that brief seems quite ridiculous. Did you have a lot of pieces in place already, or did you literally have to start from scratch?
1: We had nothing in place at all. It was it was it was done as a knee jerk response to us losing the other thing, yeah. and we had a lot of luck. I, we, I didn't know how much luck we had actually until more recently when I look back on what we did then and what and how we do things now. Yeah. But but all you mentioned the Aston Thirty Three panel right at the beginning. That was one of the pieces of of. Like, I mean, it was created luck, but it was still, you know, we happened upon that as an idea. But the whole, the, what the brief forced us to do, I mean, and it's really interesting because Aston would never have come about the way that it the, that it is as a brand if we didn't have that brief and our backs against the wall. It just wouldn't have happened that way. Yeah. Um, because by saying we weren't going to accept doing Chinese imported products that we had to build them ourselves, but they had to be the same price as all of these products and brands that were mass manufactured like that um we there was only one way of doing it clearly we couldn't do it the same way or it would just be more expensive yeah so we had to we had to think of novel ways of um creating the sound we had to think of novel ways of creating the actual build of the product yeah the materials that we used how the mics were put together and it's why Aston mics look so different um so in terms of the physical elements there's things like um if you look at the chassis on the Origin and the Spirit, there are there are um, a stainless steel chassis which has tumbled yeah. for a few hours. Yeah. So there's no paint finish on it. By reducing the by reducing the need to have a paint finish on it, because the, 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 the whole of the microphone, apart from the babs, there's no there's no finishing on it. It's just as the parts, you know, come off the presses yeah. effectively. Um, we were able to save a, a significant chunk of the, the cost of the product. I mean, we're right. talking about fifteen to twenty percent. It's wow. a big chunk. But at the same time, they're harder wearing and they look more beautiful. Yeah. So by re-engineering the way it was done, doing something nobody else had ever done before, and it's the same with the waveform head that we've got. That kind of well, that mesh head is yeah. actually an industrial spring, which is used for damping down big pieces of industrial machinery. They can right. make them up to two meters wide. Right. And we, we went in there as this little UK mic, mic company said, can you make us one that's about two inches wide, please? <laughs> <laughs> they kind of looked at, us, looked at us askance and thought, well, it's quite interesting, so we'll do it. Yeah. And that formed the whole of the mesh head, so we didn't have to build this cage yeah. that most mics build. So it's a lot cheaper, yeah. but it also, because it's a spring, it protects the mic. So yeah, we had, yeah, to, yeah. It, at every point along the mechanical design of the mic, we, and it was an architect that we employed to actually design Right. the product, Jack Monroe, who's a brilliant young guy. But every single piece of, of it, we went into, how can we make it work better and cost less? And yeah. in the end, we were able to do all of these innovations, like director stand mounting and, you know, with the waveform head, the, all of that kind of stuff. We were able to do all of that stuff and make the product less expensive than it would have been to build an OEM copy. Yeah. So at what that
0: point, was great. At what point did you start getting, um, you know, like the, the 33 involved?
1: Well, that was, as a direct result, like I said, it was a bit of luck, really, because what happened when the SE thing went south was i got on the phone to all of the people that I'd been working with for years and years and years that, that, that I was close to, producers, engineers, artists, and one by one had that conversation about what had happened yeah. hundreds of times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, We didn't want to publicise what had happened, obviously, because we didn't, um, for a start, it wouldn't mean anything to end users, really, because nobody knew that it was... The guys at Sonic Distribution that were doing all the stuff at SE—they just see a brand. Yeah. So it would have just looked like sour grapes if we started making a big song and dance about it. Um, but obviously, we needed to talk to the people that knew us and let them know what was going on yeah. um, on a personal basis. So we did that, and so many people were so horrified by the way we've been treated and said, um, "You know, well, they—you know—they're crazy. You guys are the ones that built the brand. You guys are the ones that came up with these products. You are the face of the brand. You know, yeah. what are they doing?" Um, if there's anything that we can do to help you, let us know. And it was a bit like, I guess, when you're getting divorced or something, and your, your best mate says, if you have, if you ever need the sofa, just let me know. You don't think you're going to take your best mate up on it? <laughs> but in this case, as we went further down the line to sort of developing the products, we were like, actually, all of these people that we've been talking to, that these aren't these are not you know these are not just you know a, a guy that's doing the the Cub Scout Christmas play. These are yeah. big. Big producers and engineers—they've got the best ears in the business. Yeah, let's ask them if they'll get involved in helping us to develop the sound, and they did. Wow. Um, it was as simple as that, you know. So it was—it was an accident, um, and it was a nice idea. And in the end, on the Origin and Spirit, we had—we ended up with a panel of thirty-three people. So it yeah. was—it was people like Chris Porter, who was George Michael's um, engineer for. 11 years something like that Rick Simpson who did the last five Coldplay albums yeah. and and you know I could go on it's a yeah, list yeah, of people yeah, like yeah. that and that's where the Aston 33 came from yeah. um, and these guys basically what we did was we, we as we were doing the developments we were choosing what kind of capsule to use we were making adjustments to the printed circuit board the electronics of the microphone we would do different iterations of the microphone to test which bit which improvements or changes that we've made that people actually thought improved the sound quality, and we went through six months of testing like this with the panel, oh. um, doing various different rounds of testing for capsules, the electronics, all sorts of stuff, um, using guitars, vocals, lots of different instruments,
2: yeah.
1: and they they were blind number to what they would get is is files that we sent them, um, <laughs> you know, electronically, that they would dump into their Logical Pro Tools or whatever, and they were just numbered files. They didn't know what mics we were testing. They had no idea what price point. We yeah. put competitor mics in there, yeah. and and then they would basically uh, send back uh, a, a vote on each source type, which just you know would number the microphones one to five in, in order of preference. And we would build these big kind of spreadsheets to show us which ones that come out on top, and then progress through stuff to the next round. Yeah. And that's how we did all of the audio testing at the Origin <laughs> Subsequently for Starlight and then Stealth, which just won a tech award at at this year's NAMM show, that that panel has grown. So by the time we we did Stealth, we had 600 artists, producers and engineers on the Aston 33 panel, 120 odd of whom actually took part in testing. And no other company does stuff like that, you know. So the real... real, way that we were able to develop microphones that were only selling for a few hundred quid that sound like they're two or three thousand pound microphones is is that whole process. It's entirely down to that panel and their ears.
0: Yeah so, and do you think it's um it's because you were open with the original like with the people you had those conversations to start with. And you did sort <laughs> of put yourself out there as if like, you know, we do need some help. And people do want to help. Do you think do you think it's because you were honest and open that kind of all those people have got involved?
1: I think I think there's a little bit of karma in there in terms of the way that we've always treated people in business yeah. despite what trouble we might have been going through ourselves. You yeah. know, we've always put the people that we deal with first. We've always, you know, from a customer point of view. Yeah, We, we haven't treated people like customers. We've always been very personal with people, Yeah, yeah. You know, so... Actually, genuinely interested in what people are doing with the products that we're selling, and support them and help them with stuff. And I think that I didn't get on the phone to people to ask for help. I got on the phone to people to tell them what had happened because I felt I owed them an explanation that yeah. I didn't want them to hear a twisted version of on the grapevine. Yeah. You know. And um, and I think what was really nice. I mean, well, better than really nice, actually. It was it was the thing that got us through it in the end. Was we just were not aware that we were going to get that kind of response from people. Yeah, We didn't expect it at all. And the level of outpouring of, of love and support that we got from the people around us that we'd worked with for so many years
2: yeah.
1: completely buoyed us up and got us through the whole beginning of the brand and trying to start up and all the hardship that went through that as well. Yeah. So it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing.
0: How did you, um, like the team that started Aston, were they all from Sonic Distribution or did you pull in anybody from elsewhere so
1: it was me and phil who started sonic yeah um alan who had worked as our international sales director for se for at that point it must have been like seven or eight years something like that i think
2: yeah
1: um and jack munro who um was well jack munro is andy Monroe's son andy Monroe is the big famous studio designer yeah and Andy was the guy that we designed the egg speakers. We yeah, did I've, the, got, uh, I've got some right here. The, yeah, the Monroe Sonic Eggs. Um, I've got some here as well, <laughs> funnily <laughs> enough. Which are great speakers, but unfortunately, that was a, that was another project which never really properly got off the ground. Yeah. Um, they were a bit too, you know, unusual for people and they, didn't, they I think people were scared of them, but they're bloody great sounding speakers.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but um, Andy's son, Jack, He's an architect. He's nothing to do with the music industry at all. Right. But he had he had worked on actually the stand for the eggs. He'd come up right. with a way of designing a stand that the eggs could sit on that wouldn't um, impede the audio as it ported out the bottom of the speakers. Yeah. And we thought, oh, maybe he's a good guy to work with for doing some industrial design. Yeah, yeah. Turns out the guy's an absolute genius. So it was a good <laughs> choice, but another piece of luck.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. And um, so moving forward, what... What's been like the biggest challenge with Aston then, like other than getting it going in the first place? Did yeah, you find a lot of pushback from other people in the me industry, me. or is, is the industry quite welcoming to new brands?
1: Well, the industry has been quite welcoming to Aston. Yeah, I don't know about new brands in general, but I think there's always a level of interest from
2: from the press and from customers. Yeah,
1: retailers tend to be um a bit tougher cookies to crack when it comes to being interested because their attitude is well we've already got enough microphones thanks very much What what is it you guys are going to do for us that anybody else couldn't do yeah
2: you
1: know, why why should we stop selling this brand and sell yours we're going to make the same amount of money
2: yeah
1: and that again is all about relationship and genuinely having a product where you can go well this is better so yeah. at the end of the day, your job as a retailer surely is to try and sell the best product you can to somebody for the same amount of money, right? You know, yeah. if somebody's got 200 pounds to spend, then you're not just taking their money for profit, are you? You know, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, kind of turn quite. it around and make them feel a little bit like they really should be helping you out. Yeah. And we were fortunate enough to get a bunch of very good reviews very early on. So we had the ammunition to go to the retailers with to say, we've really got a product which is better than anything else that's out there at that price point.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but it's a hard slog. But yeah, we we had some pretty underhanded stuff happen to us as well. There was a a company who shall remain nameless, right. a very big microphone company, um, who uh, when we went when we entered the American market, because they we'd crossed swords with them under the under the guise of SE um, in the past. They decided they didn't want um, James Young and his team coming to America with a new brand. Thanks very much. So they actually. Right told all of the big American dealers that if they dealt with us, with Aston, that they would lose the what? ability to sell this brand. And it was a what huge world? brand. Um, unfortunately, they were stupid enough to put it in writing to people. <laughs> and a couple of the people they put it in writing to were honorable enough to, to send us those emails. <laughs> yeah. Listen. <laughs> now. And so we kind of went back to them and just went, um, you better call the dogs off, otherwise we're going to take this to the federal <laughs> you know, to." to, to the FBI to go and investigate it and uh, and that would have shut them down it would have been a, wow. a major, major, major thing so, um, and, and that's not, you know we're not into having fights and stuff so no. they uh, wouldn't want to do that and they backed off and relented and said to the dealers, actually we changed our mind please deal do with Aston, do they're a bunch of great guys <laughs>
0: <laughs> But do you, because I mean, from from my perspective it's very much a family thing like when I came to the Christmas party it felt like being at a family a family party. I mean, obviously yeah. you asked your now wife We're to marry alcohol. you. Know. <laughs> yeah. But do you know what I mean? And I've, you know, I've, I, I, the only person that I'd ever spoken to there was you. And I felt so welcomed in. It was, it was a really nice thing to be part of. And I think that's that exudes be. through the company. And I think that's really important. Well, I mean, it's always the
1: way that we, tried to do business in all the incarnations of the companies that we had. You know, we're we musicians. We're all, I mean, nearly everybody that works in the in the company is a musician or an engineer.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, music engineer. And um, and so we're part of that tribe of people and we, we behave towards our customers the way that we would want to be treated ourselves. I mean, yeah. that's the that's the fundamental bottom line to it. But when we started Aston, I mean, it wasn't this big, well-funded multinational company or something you know an arm yeah. of akg or whatever it was just us lads trying to <laughs> scrape something together from the ashes yeah and i did all the social media yeah and it was it was me that came up with the whole you know aston family let's be this tribe and i did worry about it at the beginning as to whether people would think it was being disingenuous you know whether it was just where it would sound marketingy yeah. but it didn't I guess and it, because it wasn't meant that way, and in, in the end, that's why I decided to go with it because it's like, no, this is actually how we want to communicate with people. We do want people to be part of our tribe, we do want to create this family, and we're going to treat people that way and, be, and answer every single message, you know, as as people are individuals, not with some cut and pasted stuff,
2: you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so it, it it got built that way, and then people started picking up on it and tagging themselves as part of the Aston family yeah. and treating us that way, and it's, yeah, it's been brilliant.
0: Yeah, it's a really nice thing. And um, so let's, because I've realised that it's, we're wanging on a bit, um, <laughs> let's get to, where's where's music at right now, sort of for you personally and sort of industry-wise? It's
1: a very broad question.
0: <laughs> well, just where is it for you? Are you hearing, like, what sort of music are you listening to? Is it interesting? Yeah, I mean... I, I listen to everything
1: from all the stuff that I grew up with and still love, you know, the Joni Mitchell's and the Cat Stevens of the world, yeah. to to what Lipper is doing with, you know, sub bass and 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 people like uh, oh um, Bruno Major, for example. The, the album that he released was it, a year and a half ago. Right, I
2: don't know.
1: Just uh, I remember sitting and listening to that with my because I, I, I'm still writing and recording myself. In fact, my my, my writing partner and I have got an album coming out in the next couple of months. So, okay. but um, I'm always looking for stuff that's different. Um, you know, I think some people try and write and record music that's of a genre. Yeah. I'm always looking for people that are breaking the rules. I guess it's the same with the pipe business, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what struck me about the Bruno Major album was the fact that he was just doing stuff that you, in inverted commas, shouldn't do when you're producing and mixing an album. Yeah. You know, he was he was over-compressing some stuff really badly, over-compressing it to use it as a, as an effect. Yeah, yeah. He was he was doing something with the vocals that you're not supposed to do. Just the whole mix was, from a textbook point of view, wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. yeah. But from a listening point of view, holy shit, it was amazing.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, and that's the kind of stuff I like. I mean, when Joel, Joel and I are recording here, um, I never use mic stands, for example. I mean, one of the things I like about our mics is that you can turn them upside down with a mic cable and then stick them on the desk. So yeah. we always just put the mics on the desk yeah. in a row. We've got things when we were doing percussion, we had, a, a, um, instead of using samples or anything, we just had an Aston Origin upside down on a thick pad of paper with the game cranked all the way up. And I was just tapping the paper with my thumbs to make a kick drum mic. Right. Uh, <laughs> And you can probably see in the background. I've got this old sword there, and we were pulling the sword <laughs> sword across the mic stand that we had in the room that was at uh, the back of the room, not being used, yeah. to to make this scraping sound for this weird kind of percussive cymbal sound. You know, all <laughs> sorts of stuff like that. So, so I I love how eclectic music is now. I mean, there's so many different genres, there's so many people producing music, and it's not all good, but there's always good stuff within the different genres that are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's something that's that's very of a moment, I think. I think it's very difficult for people to get ahead in music now because the distribution and of music and the and the, the compensation for it being played is yeah pretty difficult to make a living out of yeah, yeah but people do and it's still enjoyable and maybe in, in the final event music was never about making lots of money and being famous music was about the creation and the art and about telling stories that got passed down and that helped people in their lives and yeah. you know bonded people together so maybe in all of this um, breakdown of the the music industry the way it was 20 years ago music's returning to how it used to be
0: but do you think you're part of that because you're offering kind of a superior you can get better results with less money I (laughs) hope what we're offering is
1: the ability for people that are working from home that don't have a big income to be able to record at the same kind of quality um, as somebody that's got big budgets, yeah. because the mics are as good as the, the three thousand pound mics that are being used in recording studios all over the world, and in fact, our mics are now being used in all those same studios because they're that good. Yeah. But it's the only. It's the only brand. There's lots of brands out there that you can buy a mic from for between you know you know a hundred to three hundred pounds. Yeah. But we're the only brand in that niche, the only one of those brands that you'll consistently see being used by top artists, producers, engineers and recording studios all over the world. Yeah. So that's that's what we've given the home recording industry, which is pretty cool.
0: That is pretty cool. And uh what do you see for the future? Like what do you think what do you think's gonna happen with all this sort of stuff that's going on? Like more home recording and all this kind of business. What do you think or what do you hope?
1: I don't know. I think I'm too much of an old fogey to know what the hell to expect, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I I went through a period when I felt very down about music. I felt like um, the quality of the music that was being output, um, it became quantity, not quality. It became people trying to get stuff out quickly, not learning how to do things properly. Um, And just... Even things, even things like uh, the fact that people listen to most people, uh, most younger people anyway, listen to music on mobile phones. Very poor, very poor quality MP3s, and usually as well with big happy smiley face type EQ all over them. So it's all bass and all treble and none of the stuff that you actually need to be hearing in the middle of it. You know. And then I look back on when I was a kid and think, well, I was listening to stuff on tape cassettes that, that was had hiss all over it. <laughs> yeah. I was putting happy, smiley face EQ all over it because I thought that's what sounded good. Yeah, yeah. And I had to be educated about music to get to the point where I could look at other people <laughs> listening to it and go, what the f- are you doing? <laughs> you know, so so I think it's just, I think it is just what it is. But what's, uh, so I came full circle on that. And now I'm enjoying the fact that people are just being creative yeah. and, and doing stuff that, you know, that sounds interesting. Um, polishing it is, uh, is something you learn as you go along I think or how to do it in a polished way
0: yeah I've heard <clears throat> of, there's a sort of eternal debate and I hear this a bit at this place where I do some teaching as well because if and people saying that you know if people are listening to it on shit speakers like off their phone or whatever you know do you need a mix engineer and a mastery engineer and all that sort of stuff that is traditional to make it sound to make things sound at a certain level. If it's mostly coming out of crappy speakers with a big EQ curve or you know whatever, do you still need that stuff? I think it's the creative element of what an engineer or a producer
1: puts into it that people stick to. That's what makes. That's what takes something from being a good recording made at somebody's home studio to being something highly commercial. Yeah. Is that you know I've I've had mixes of my own stuff done by people that are. That, you know, that are very well-known producers and in some cases engineers and you get them back and you know, I do decent mixes myself but you get them back and go, ah, okay, yeah, <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> it's the creative stuff that's brought to it. So, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily about the quality of the surroundings that you're in. You need good kit to put stuff down if you want to have a good quality recording but it might be that your style is to be really grungy and lo-fi so that's yeah. all right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah it's a bit like it's the same question when people say
1: what's your favourite mic or what's the best mic in the world for this it's like well there isn't one you have to there's no such thing as a best mic you have to you have to try lots of different stuff out and see what works for the sound you want for the application that you're using so it could be anything
0: yeah yeah okay and do you have got any advice for young people who might want to you know possibly start a business or you know enter the world of music in some way anything you've learned one one thing that you've learned that you could pass on yeah don't be afraid of failure <laughs> allow yourself to fail yeah allow yourself to fail yeah i mean don't go to, don't go out deliberately
1: to just fail everything <laughs> obviously that would be stupid <laughs> but allow yourself to to fail before you've basically pushed yourself to the edge because you don't need to do that i mean failure is actually what you learn from and it took me way too long to learn that particular lesson
2: yeah.
1: Um, once once you have failed at something it gives you the capacity to, to, to realise that A, you can deal with it and B, that you can sit and analyse what you've done and start again yeah. instead of trying to flog that dead horse for as long as possible so yeah, yeah don't, be afraid, don't be afraid of failure
0: Okay, and on that note we are done <laughs> Thank thanks you so, mate. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on Very well, it's been a good chat so that was James Young from Aston Microphones. Uh yeah, big shout out for him to do for doing that. I know his kids were at home and you know we had a couple of interruptions and quite surprisingly didn't have any interruptions from my kids. Normally there's always an inter- always a interruption whenever I'm doing it in my studio at home. So yeah, Aston Mics, go and check them out. They clearly make some of the best microphones you can put in your mic locker if you're doing podcasting then you want a stealth or basically whatever you're recording get an Aston mic in go down to your local shop or get online and read some reviews or give me a shout here I'll give you an honest review I do help design the well I help design the sound of them on part of their panel but I will give you an honest appraisal of what they do if you want to And I do that for quite a lot of people anyway, because, uh, yeah, I'm proud of I'm proud of being associated with them. So, yeah, that was James Young Um, during this lockdown. I don't know when the next podcast is coming. We did one with Ian Archer a couple of weeks ago that went out. um, I think we've reached number 10 in this second series. So if this is your first one, then you can go back and check that out. There's series one as well. People like Mr. Scruff, DJ Format, Damian Harris from Skimp Records. Uh season two had all sorts of people. Ian Archer, as I said, DJ Mr. Thing, Lee Bright from BBE Records, uh Laura Vane, a whole host of people, all telling different stories and all with quite remarkable stories about, you know, like their lives and it's very inspiring and I find it inspiring. I think that's the main thing. And uh, yeah, hopefully you you do too. So yeah, if you do like it, uh, you could go onto iTunes and leave a review on there. That would be much appreciated. Uh, we don't sell merch. We don't do any of that stuff. This is pretty much just a kind of homegrown project, really. And it helps inspire me and makes puts me in the conversation with people that I admire, basically. And that's why I do it. But hopefully it's interesting for you too. So if you do like it, yeah, a review on iTunes is welcome. And that's what you need to do. You can maybe share it around your socials if you want to. Uh, hopefully we will bank a few more while people are at home. Maybe without that much to do, we'll bag a few guests. And they'll be coming out and sporadic, very sporadically. Yeah, we did have a few lined up for the summer, but I guess we'll start working on season three fairly shortly. Um, and we'll let you know when that is. But yeah, please just subscribe and then you'll get them straight to your device when they happen. So until then, stay safe, stay well, stay inside, uh, do all that stuff. We'll get all through this together if we act as a community. And that's pretty much all I've got to say about it, really. Just stay safe, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon. Peace.